Last week, we were talking about how God found Abram, and uh, that when God did find Abram, he wasn't all that right. He had a lot of problems, he had disappointments, but he also was a worshiper of the sun god Sin. So uh, there was much to be done. Continue now, after his call to faith, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake. Then Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maidservants and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and on his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram, What have you done to me? He said, Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say, She is my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything that he had. God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, our brother Paul says that much of the Old Testament was written for our warning, that we might learn from the example of those who have gone before us. And sometimes we see the the negative examples even here. We learn how, how difficult it is to live by faith. But we are also, Paul says, the ones upon whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. And so help us to see not just our sin in them, but Jesus in whom all things are fulfilled, that we might trust him and trust him alone this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I would imagine that none of you here remembers learning how to walk. Does anyone remember that process? Some of you who maybe have seen it on film, perhaps, or bits and pieces of it, but I don't remember learning how to walk, but I remember watching my daughter learn how to walk. And I remember those very brief, you know, first things, you know, when she stands up. You know how all kids have, they, they climb up, they pull themselves up, and they stand there. And they do the wobbly thing, and you're kind of always wondering, are they going to make it? Especially if they have, you know, a large head. And the... <laughs> And the center of gravity is a little bit off, you know? And so there's a little more wobble kind of going on right there. And our daughter didn't have a big head, so we didn't see too much of that. Our daughter almost walked when we were on vacation up, up north. And it was very close to her birthday. And she, you looked like, you know, she's almost there. She's almost there. And then we came home and it set her back, <laughs> you know? But then there was one day, I was in our bedroom. And she had pulled herself up by the window in our bedroom. And I guess she had been looking out. And I turn around, and all of a sudden, I see her kind of going, walking across the room, about 10 steps or so. And then finally, it was like, 
boom. Okay. It's kind of cute, right? There's not, there's not all that much damage you can do to yourself when you're learning to walk. Uh, although I am reminded of when <clears throat> our nephew Patch learned to walk, and I remember because this was the first time I met Amy's family, and Patch was young, and he was he he was a go-getter because he had two older siblings, and I remember. Okay, this is uh, up north, sort of in the, the basement, and there's a wood-burning stove, and he's trying to run along, and he does a header, and he bounces right off the, the mantle place of the... But, hey, it was Patch, and he just kept going. It didn't matter. Um, he got right up and kept going. But we don't remember this. Uh, we, you know, it's, it's not too much damage is done. But learning to walk by faith is very similar in many ways to learning to walk. And there are going to be times when you wobble. There are going to be times when you fall flat on your face. And that's what we were watching right here in the text this morning, is a man who is learning to walk by faith. Because it is not something that comes natural or normal to us. It is something that God brings us to school, so to speak, to learn how to do. So, the big idea this morning is that God preserves the promise despite circumstances and sin. And so what we find here in the first part is that fear leaves, leads to sinful self-preservation. Obstacles arise. Remember, Abram has moved into the land. He's gone from, remember our little, our little non-map, uh, he moved from Ur up to Haran, down, then down into Canaan, and there it was God appeared to him again and said, this is the land that I'm giving you. So years after he received the initial promise of go and I'll show you where I'm going to give you, suddenly he knows where. And then there's crisis pops up because there is a famine in the land. And now what is interesting as we look at the first half of this text is that God is conspicuously absent. It's not that God isn't there, but God doesn't seem to be in the forefront of Abram's mind as, as he encounters these things. And as a result, Abram begins to rely upon his own solutions instead of the one who called him to the Canaan in the first place. So this famine arises. The land that he had been promised just before has become barren. And as all of us would be prone to do, fear set in. Okay? That is normal. Think about the joblessness that goes on now. I've been there. Okay? I know what it's like to be underemployed and to kind of go, how is this all going to happen? Where is the mortgage going to come from? How are we going to pay the health insurance? How are we going to make sure that my kid have, kids have food to eat every day? These are similar to the ideas that would be going through Abram because now he's got not just he and his wife, not just Lot, but remember, he had this group of people that left Haran with him. He's responsible for all of these people. It's one thing to think of yourself you know, I'm responsible for my family, but I've got a brother-in-law who owns a small business. And you start to feel that responsibility for all those, two, all those people as well. And so Abram is feeling this great responsibility. And with this obstacle, there is fear that sets in. But what's interesting is that he doesn't turn to the Lord in this instance. There's no record here of he prayed. There's no record of him seeking God, of going to the altars that he has built and worshiping him and saying, what do I do? All we have is his plan, which was to go to Egypt. Which is kind of interesting because he's, he's never been to Egypt. And Egypt is down here. 
why wouldn't he go back there? We're not really sure, but one of the, the realities is, is that I'm sure he heard this for, as the, he's on a trade route, and I'm sure he heard this from people traveling up and down the trade route, is that the reality is that because of the Nile and the regularity of the Nile, that they were more or less protected from famine. We're going to see that, of course, well, I don't know if we'll get there, but later on in Genesis, there's a famine that strikes even Egypt. Okay? But Canaan is very subject to famines because it depends upon rain for irrigation, not a river. And so there's no rain. A famine has set in. Abram and his people are desperate to know what to do, and he comes up with the idea to go to Egypt. The key idea that we have to keep in mind here is not just that there's a solution, but he didn't trust God who had just promised him the land. He's now living by sight and not by faith. The promise that he had been given has begun to move out of his vision. It's not occupying his mind. He's not going, hey, Lord, you promised me this land. Help me to stay here. He's moving away. And so we have this phrase that he sojourned. Which, for those, for those of us who are not familiar, the, you know, any of you ever sojourned anywhere? No sojourners? Okay. The, the idea here of this word sojourn, this is the verb form, but in the noun form, it has that idea of a resident alien. And the, the, the concept is that you check in at the border. We sort of have this idea that way back then, borders? What are borders? You know, people just kind of came and went, and there were migrations that took place, and large-scale migrations usually ended basically in war and the, you know, destruction of a culture. But what's happening here is that we have archaeological evidence of forts along the trade routes that you would have traveled to get down into Egypt. You had to check in at the border. You had to say, I am so-and-so. This is my name. This is what I do so that you can prove that you could, you know, have a living for yourself. You had to do this in order to cross the border. And so Abram gets permission to enter into Egypt at this time. But there's a problem that erupts. And it starts off kind of good, because doesn't every woman love to hear that phrase? You are a beautiful woman. Doesn't that just, when you hear that from your husband, doesn't that make you just go, oh, I wouldn't know that because I don't hear that. Um, which is a good thing. Okay? But he continues. <laughs> And they will kill me. Now, this was not totally unreasonable. We see from earlier on, and what happens in Scripture is that there were people who would, tyrants would come and they would take the women that they wanted. And if there was someone who was in the way, they would not hesitate to eliminate that person. And so, Abram, as a, as a stranger in this land, has, a, in a sense, a justifiable fear that he might be overcome and killed so that someone might have his wife. And so what happens is he comes up with this lie. It's a partial truth because she really is his half-sister, but it covers over the whole truth, which is that she's also his wife. And so he says to her, tell them that, I'm, that you're my sister, and then everything will go okay. Right? This is his brilliant idea, and uh, part of this may be wrapped up in the idea of the Bedouins. What the Bedouins would do, they were 
there still are Bedouins who live in that region. And uh, they kind of moved around a lot. They're a little nomadic. But what they would do is they would negotiate a bride price. So part of what, was, what Abram might have, might have been thinking was, this will buy me time to negotiate a bride price. And then I can kind of snip, you know, sneak off and preserve my marriage as opposed to actually going through with selling off my sister uh, to someone else to be married. So he thinks he's got an idea that's going to work. Okay? He doesn't expect what happened to have actually happened. Because what happens is that she begins to be praised for her beauty. And it's interesting because that halal is the same, same word that we get hallelujah from. And so they are praising her beauty. And so some of us, when we read this text, and we know that she, at this point in time, is probably 65 years old, and we're probably going, okay, maybe she's really good looking for someone who's 65, but come on. No, these guys are praising her beauty in the courts. It's sort of... I remember Raquel Welch. And I don't mean, um, you know, one million years B.C. Raquel Welch. Okay? But I remember, uh, you know, in the, the late 80s, working in a bookstore, and she had just put out another new book, and she was a good-looking woman at that age. Any age. That's Sarah. Don't know how, don't know why, but she had a beauty about her. It was not that she had a brilliant personality. The text is clear. It's about her beauty. They're praising her beauty. And unfortunately, this praise gets to the ears of Pharaoh, who does not negotiate. And he took her into his harem to become his wife. Okay, now not only is Abraham not in the land that he has been promised... But now the wife through whom the seed is supposed to come that he might have a great nation is in someone else's house, not his own. What Abram seems to have forgotten in all of this mess and all of his fear is that the promise was not just to him, but that she was part of that promise. He's going to forget that later. We're going to see he's, he's going to stumble. He's going to fall throughout this whole process. She's brought into, the, into the, the harem, but here's the good news, so to speak, if you're Abram, is that because he's her brother and he's now going to be related to Pharaoh, he gets some sweet deals and Pharaoh treats him nicely. He gets a great gift from Pharaoh in all of this. But despite the material wealth that comes to him, the fact is the promise is in jeopardy. And this does remind us that the idea that living by faith is something that is learned by practice. It is not something that happens uh, accidentally or normally, just sort of occurs. Um, Pastor Matt Chandler in Dallas talks about how holiness is not an accident. Okay, You growing in sanctification just doesn't mysteriously happen. But there is great diligence and effort that goes into that as well as the, the providence of God that goes into that. And in learning to walk by faith is very similar in that God brings these circumstances into our lives that will challenge our faith. That he might strengthen it. But Abram has not done well because he has been... He's in fear of his circumstances. He's in fear of man. He's grown, his unbelief is now present. And so he has, he has done these things to preserve his own skin. 
instead of trusting his God. So fear undermines faith and leads to disobedient self-preservation. And thankfully, that's not the whole story. Because God is mercifully faithful to his promise. Verses 17 through 20. Because now God shows up. The one that Abram was ignoring this whole time shows up even though he doesn't seem to have been invited. Okay? And what he does is he plagues Pharaoh and his household. That word afflict, it's the same, it's it's the, the verb and the noun of the same thing, plagues. He plagues Pharaoh and his household. What happens is that God keeps his promise that we talked about last week. He is cursing those who treated Abram lightly, who thought his wife was someone that they could just take for their own. And so now he is cursing Pharaoh, and and he's keeping the promise that he made years before. Apparently... Sarai is untouched by this plague and probably, reading between the lines, was questioned by Pharaoh as to why she and no one else was touched by this plague. And that is how Pharaoh knew that she was not just his sister, but also his wife. And so what happens is that Abram is now confronted by a very angry Pharaoh. His questions seem to echo Genesis 3. What is this that you have done? He adds to me. But still, there's there's meant to be this echo of this confrontation. You know, God and Adam, godless Pharaoh or idolatrous Pharaoh with godly Abram. See the sad irony there that's at work? This is not the way it's supposed to be. Abraham's supposed to be the guy rebuking Pharaoh, not Pharaoh rebuking Abram. And yet, this is what has happened. He is being rebuked by a pagan king. And then Pharaoh says, go. Same thing we find at the very beginning of chapter 12. The sad irony is he says the same thing to Abram that God said to Abram, except this time it's not a positive thing. Abram and all of his house are expelled from Egypt. His visa, his resident alien status has been revoked. He's booted. Hasta la vista. Have a nice day. Don't ever come back. You are not welcome here because of what you have done, because of the lies you spoke and the situation you created. Abram made the mess. And it is God who got him out of the mess. You see, this is part of living by faith. Our faith will falter. But the object of our faith never falters. We sometimes get stuck into this trap thinking that that our, our walk by faith really depends upon the strength of our faith. And really, it depends upon the strength of the object of our faith. It's about him, not about us. See, he's delivering Abram despite the fact 
that he has the, the barest remnant of faith, so to speak. Despite the fact that he has been acting out of unbelief, God is faithful. Adam, uh, sorry, Abram was unfaithful, yet God was faithful. We see here that he is patient with our failings. He's far more patient with our failings, I think, than we often are with our failings, if we're regenerate, anyway. So God is concerned for his name, and he keeps his promise despite unbelief. Okay, so that's the story. And that's the... So we kind of learn from the story. But I want to put this back into kind of the larger framework, first of Israel and then within the larger framework for us. Uh, now, some of you might have been thinking, wow, Steve's done early today. Sorry. <laughs> Not quite yet. God here in this text is preparing Israel for a greater exodus. Just like Abram, Israel is going to sojourn into Egypt during, guess what? A famine. Right, And in fact, what we're going to see as you go through the Old Testament is that Egypt always becomes the temptation for Israel. Whenever something goes wrong, there's this temptation to turn not to the Lord, but to turn to Egypt. Did I say that before? Right. That's what I meant to say if I misspoke earlier. Okay? No matter what happens, you know, here come the Babylonians. Where do they turn? Egypt. And what does God do? Oh, sure, Egypt comes up and they get destroyed by Babylon at the, ba- the Battle of Carchemish, which on our map is like right around here and not too far from uh, Haran. Um, but, and this is why God has to tell them that, that Egypt is like a reed that splinters and cuts your hand. You, try, you, can't, you cannot rely upon Egypt, and yet Israel always kept trying to rely upon Egypt. Well, Back to that greater exodus that took place. Initially, because of Joseph, they were treated very well. Uh, they had been brought in, and they, they had a favored status from the Pharaoh. And then, of course, you know what happens is that another Pharaoh comes who didn't know who Joseph was. There had probably been a change in dynasties that takes place. And this Pharaoh, knowing the, the problem of migration that can sometimes destroy a culture, says, there's too many of those Israelites. We've got to get rid of them somehow. And so he oppresses them. He turns on them. And you know how that goes? What are they doing? Pharaoh is treating them lightly, and so God brings plagues to set his people free. So God sent the plagues upon Egypt, keeping, often keeping the plague from Israel, just like he did Sarah. Some of those plagues, like when it was dark in the land, well, there was light. And where the Egyptian, the Israelites were, rather. Finally, Pharaoh would expel them, and but we see that they, in the process, they plunder the Egyptians on the way. Just as Abram, when he left Egypt, left enriched. He was rich when he got there, and he was even richer when he left. Remember all of those maidservants, manservants, donkeys, camels that he got from Pharaoh. He was enriched, pointing to the reality that the Israelites would be enriched by the Egyptians on their exodus. So redemptive history kind of flows in these patterns because God prepares us for the future. Because it doesn't just stop with the exodus. What we see is that the prophets during the exile, like Ezekiel, use the exodus to explain what's going to happen when they, rem- when they get out of Babylon. 
And so the Exodus story becomes a pattern of redemption that God uses throughout redemptive history. And so we find that when we get to Revelation, what, what are they referring to? All of the same things that happened in the Exodus and in, in the, the exile, the end of the exile. The pattern keeps repeating. And yet it becomes a, a, something greater, something grander, something more important that takes place. So, anyway, let's look at this from the, from the perspective of Christ in the reality that God prepares us to receive one who is greater than Adam. Abram, rather. Sorry. Think about this for a moment. Jesus, hungry in the wilderness, is offered the shortcut. Right? If you're the Son of God, which he had just been told he was, (laughs) behold my Son in whom I am well pleased, was the voice that he heard at his baptism. If you're the Son of God, why don't you turn this stone into bread that you might eat? Jesus was offered the shortcut by the evil one. Jesus refused to take the shortcut. He embraced the suffering that was laid out before him instead of taking the easy path. And it is through that that Jesus overcame, precisely because he embraced the hard stuff. He overcame not just the circumstances, he overcame his enemies. He overcame for us as our representative, and now he lives in us through the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can begin to overcome these things that plague us, so that we are not left to ourselves to somehow sort out how to get out of the fixes we find ourselves in or the the obstacles that we experience. But He lives in us so that we might begin to overcome. And here's here's the difference. Fear looks to our circumstances and goes, man, how that's hard. Faith looks to Him and says, He is great. And He has promised to help me. And every day, we're at that point, aren't we? Don't we stand at that crossroad almost every day? Am I going to live today by fear or by faith? Am I going to live in fear that financially things are going to fall apart? Which some of you have that fear. Or are you going to live by faith? Am I going to live in fear that my child is going to be lost in rebellion? Or am I going to trust God who have a plan that is bigger than that? Am I going to live in fear of cancer because someone I know very in my family that I love died of cancer? Or am I going to live by faith? Am I going to live in fear that I'll lose my vocation if I tell the truth? We're going to get to that in just a moment. I'm not going to live by faith. This is something we live with every day. Whether that day we will walk in fear or whether we will walk in faith, all of us are there. Jesus, when you get to his trial, he knows what will come if he tells the truth. Are you the Messiah? 
He knows if he speaks the truth, he will die. But he doesn't cover it up. He doesn't pull an Abram. He does not tell half the truth. He does not deceive. He resisted this temptation to save his own life so that he might bear the penalty for his people who did lie to save their lives. Among other things. And that's the reality too. Is, is that the, the, the fear of man tempts us often to lie to protect our reputations, to protect our jobs, to protect our relationships. The fear of man is what drives much of our deceit. I remember being in college. I'd been a Christian for barely two years. Group project for my business class. We had to develop a business plan, and I had a, we had divided up the work, and I was supposed to do one part of this process. And we're meeting with the professor to see how everything is going, and she asks, and the, I hadn't really done my, my task, and yet everyone else was kind of like, oh, yeah, that's done. And so I just kind of was like, oh, yeah, that's done. Let's protect that grade. <laughs> you know? I gave in to the fear of man that instant. And uh, we make all those little compromises because we figure, well, you know, I'll do my work later, right? It's just not done now. And I remember I couldn't sleep because the Spirit was at work going, hello, <laughs> hello, Steve. That's not how you live. It's not what you're, that's not what you're made to do. And so I should have talked to, this is again, youthful indiscretion. <laughs> I should have talked to my group members first, but I went and told my professor. I said, you know what? I wasn't honest. But we can't be worried about the consequences as much as we worry about whether or not we're betraying our God in the process. I said, that happens to us on a regular basis. Okay? That's, that's just college, man. <laughs> that's not important stuff. And yet there it was, that fork in the road. But what happens is that Jesus came or, you know, to free us from the fear of man by creating a greater fear of God in us. He talks about that a little bit in the Gospels. He says, don't be afraid of those who can destroy the body. Okay? Jesus recognizes the power that is within humanity to persecute and to kill. But he says, fear instead the one who has the power, the authority, to destroy both body and soul in hell. We're talking a little bit about that in Sunday school this morning. Okay? A much greater authority a much greater power, he is the one that we should live in reverence of instead of bowing in fear before these people that are in authority over us. Him. It is him. The only way that the fear of man is cast out is actually through a healthy fear of God. As, uh, let's see, who was it? Ed Welch said in the book that I referenced earlier today, 
The person who fears the Lord will fear nothing else. It will cast out that fear. And so Jesus works in us to create this fear of God so that we will not be afraid of anyone or anything else. He works in us, not just that, but to make us truth-tellers precisely because He is a truth-teller. He is more than just a truth-teller. He is the truth. And He's going to make us in His image. Truthfulness, not deceitfulness. But more than that, we have this idea that Jesus, as the conqueror, distributes gifts to all citizens of his kingdom. Think about that for a moment, okay? Just in the idea of Abram received these great gifts from Pharaoh. What does the scripture say about Jesus in in Ephesians chapter 4? But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Jesus, as the conquering king of the universe, is enriched and by that, and gives that richness, shares that richness with all those who belong to him. And part of that is, is what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4, the gifts of the Spirit for the well-being, the edification of the church. Those come to us precisely because Jesus has conquered. So this passage about Adam's failure really kind of opens up to us the greatness of who Christ is. That when we're in Adam's shoe, Abram's shoes, have I been saying Adam all day? Yeah. No? Inconsistent, huh? I've been meaning Abram all, all morning long. That when we're in Abram's shoes, we don't have to do what Abram did. But because of the power of God's Spirit, which Jesus purchased for us, we're able to walk as Jesus walked. But, I will say, that comes with time. That is not something that just is... Remember when I talked about learning to walk? It didn't stop there, did it? I mean, when my daughter had you know, the 10 steps and she'd go to 20 steps, she could walk normally. Uh, what happened is that then she started to run. And, you know, and those of you who have children know what that means. Lots of falling down in the street. And I don't know how many times I carried my daughter home from a walk around the block because she had a skinned knee and she's bawling her eyes out. She's like, Band-Aid, Band-Aid, Band-Aid. Okay, and, you know, and it doesn't stop there because then you move on to the bike. And somehow, I don't know how she learned how to ride a bike without training wheels with only getting her knee skinned once compared to how many troubles we had with her walking down the street. I don't understand this at all. I want to lay the goal out for you, but I also want to recognize the difficulty in getting to the goal. If, we, if I never lay the goal before you, you'll just kind of sit where you are and just think, Well, life stinks, that's okay. No, it's not okay. But I also don't want you to have an unrealistic expectation that, well, you know, I can just, if I just trust, everything will be good. I'll never, I won't, I won't lie and I won't cheat. I wish I could say that. But just as John wrote to, in his first letter, you know, I don't want you to sin, but when you do, 
there is an advocate. What I want is for you to be in the process of learning to walk by faith. And I tell you now, you're going to fall. No matter how long you've been in this process, you're still going to trip in your fall. You know, hey, I still trip. Physically, I mean, you know, I've been walking for 40 years. I still trip. Okay? As Christians, we're still going to, we're still going to trip. But as Christians, we get back up and start walking again. Instead of saying, I'm done. Because Christ is is sort of like the dad beckoning their child. Come, come here. I'm waiting for you. And not in a cruel way. Because he knows by the power of his spirit, he will get us there. Okay? Anyway, walking by faith is not automatic. It is a process that is learned as God works in our circumstances, as he works to expose our fears, which then provide us with an opportunity to walk by faith instead. And when we fail, he is there to pick us back up again and to get us started again. And if we need a Band-Aid, he'll give us one of those too. It isn't the size of our faith that's important. But the object of our faith. And the object of our faith is Jesus who overcame fear, who overcame death, who overcame hell, who overcame sin, and who overcame the devil. And so while it may be difficult, the end is sure. Let's pray. Fear, Father, are so common to us. Unbelief is sort of like always there for us, always a temptation for us, always an obstacle for us, almost like the dog of a, a tail of a dog. And at times they rob us of our spiritual vitality, just like the heat of the day can rob us of our physical strength. Father, in the school of faith, there is no easy lesson. You stretch us. You try us. Prepare us, exercise us, purify us, that we might be more consistently satisfied in you. That we might more consistently trust you regardless of our circumstances. And so we ask that you would work in us this week to humble us, and to encourage us, Strengthen us. We ask that you would make Jesus greater in our eyes. And we ask this in the name of the Savior of sinners, the Sanctifier of saints, Jesus who has overcome all of his enemies and ours. Amen.